0: turn in your Bibles to Psalm 2. Once you are there, then we are going to ask you to stand as we read God's Word. Psalm 2. These are the words of God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And we trust God will bless the reading of his inerrant word. And You can be seated. So last week, Keith shared with you that we are starting a summer series on the Psalms. We're going to be working through the first 10 Psalms over the summer, uh, and this accomplishes several goals. One, it helps us to alternate between the Old and the New Testament in our preaching, right? So we just finished 1 Timothy, uh, a New Testament book, and now we are ready to start uh, an Old Testament book. Um, And also, the chapters in the Psalms tend to be more kind of standalone units. There's not just one uh, long sustained progression of thought, uh, and so while people are gone in summer and uh, coming and going, uh, it's not hard to uh, to stay engaged when you're here, uh, because it's not just one building on the other, it's more standalone units. And, as you've noticed, the last two weeks we've also sang the psalms that we are preaching through, uh, and this is, I think, significant. Um, we discussed this in Sunday School a few weeks ago. Uh, the Psalms are the church's original songbook. Okay? The, the Psalms were given as songs, and for many centuries, it was the church's one and only songbook. Uh, and we live in an age where we're blessed with a lot of sacred music, a lot of good hymns and choruses, and, and newer music has been written. Uh, but sometimes that has meant we have neglected the Psalms altogether, which I do not think is a positive thing. Uh, and so, Thankfully, we are living in a time where psalm singing, I think, is being recovered, Uh, and the psalms uh, are special when we sing them because while there's many good hymns and many good choruses that have been written through church history, when we're singing the psalms, we're actually singing God's words back to him. When you're singing a psalm, that's the only time that the lyrics are not only good, but they're inerrant and infallible, okay? So there is a benefit, there is a blessing in singing God's words back to him through the psalms. And you'll also notice, when you look at the content of the psalms, uh, especially when it's set lyrically, you'll notice a a different vision of God being displayed than what there is in a lot of contemporary Christian music. You see God as he presents himself, and it's not a a soft, sentimental deity like we often have with contemporary music, uh, although I think we are also in an age where that is maybe improving as well. So, we're looking at Psalm 2, and this is a messianic psalm, which means it is looking ahead to Jesus. So it's, it's set in David's time, it's set in David's family, but it's looking ahead to David's greater son, who is going to come, Jesus Christ. And this is one of the most widely used psalms in the New Testament. Uh, I've, I've sometimes talked about Psalm 110.1 being God's favorite Bible verse, and that's because it is uh, quoted in the New Testament more frequently than any other Old Testament verse. But Psalm 2 is not far behind. It is cited 13 times in the New Testament. uh, And so Psalm 2 should be on your short list of psalms to become very familiar with. Because if we see Old Testament themes emerging again and again and again in the New Testament, that is significant. And like many prophecies in Scripture, there are multiple layers of fulfillment in the prophecies and in what David is seeing as he looks ahead. There are multiple fulfillments that get up to the high point, or the ultimate point, which is uh, the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so when we read a psalm like this, it's good for us to keep in mind uh, that there is an up-close fulfillment. So some of this is going to happen right in David's own lifetime. Much of it is right in front of his nose. uh, Within months or years, this is going to happen. But then some of it is telescoped all the way out several hundred years to the time where we get to Jesus Christ. Okay, And these these up-close... Temporary fulfillments are often called types or shadows in the Old Testament. Uh, We looked at that on Baptism Sunday, how Noah's Ark served as a type or a shadow of baptism which was going to come. Uh, Many prophecies work that way. Something happens up close within a few years of what the prophet says, and then ultimately it points to the ultimate reality in Jesus Christ. Uh, And that's what we have here in Psalm 2. So the first three verses, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So if we're looking at this in the immediate time frame of David, we do know that even during the reign of Saul, David was appointed to rule over Israel. When Saul's rule was taken away from him, it didn't all happen at once, God declared it, and then over time Saul gradually loses the kingdom and David takes it. And David's ascent to the throne was opposed. The Philistines opposed it, Saul opposed it, Saul's advisors of course opposed it, uh, but nevertheless God had set this thing and so it was going to come. But we also know that even in David's own family, if you read the, the story of David, it's a, in many ways it's glorious and in many other ways it's tragic because David's own sexual sin caused civil war in his own household. Uh, we're step-siblings, there's palace intrigue, there's uh, an incestuous rape there's two brothers who hate each other and start a war and ultimately uh, David's own son Absalom turns against him and there's civil war in uh, in the royal family of Israel and then we also see when we look forward and when we apply the psalm to Christ to Jesus we see similar kind of opposition in high places there's likewise people who are opposed to Jesus taking his throne we look at men like Herod or Pilate or the Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin who all have their own interests in mind, but they all come together in their opposition against Jesus taking his throne uh, in heaven. And just like David has civil war and betrayal in his own family, Christ likewise has betrayal in his own inner circle when his own disciple Judas uh, commits the treachery of betraying Jesus to the authorities. And in a cosmic sense, very little has changed since the time of David or since the time of Jesus. Christ has made it clear in the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, that all authority on heaven and earth belongs to him. And so even though Christ didn't establish his kingdom as a political kingdom, the fact remains that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. And the fact that he has authority on earth means that earthly rulers are accountable to him, and so while it's not a political kingdom, his kingdom does have political consequences. Kings and rulers are really just men like the rest of us, and unless they have been adopted into God's family, they pretend like they can serve and operate independently of God. And we know from Scripture and from history that wise and godly kings are a great blessing to their nations, while foolish and ungodly rulers are a curse on themselves and on everyone around them, including the nations that they are governing. And by our sinful nature, we all whether a plowboy or a king, we all want to throw off our accountability that we have before God and to his law, and political rulers are really no different. The only difference between the political ruler and the plowboy is that the political ruler has more power. It looks more feasible when he wages his war against God, but it's just as futile. Jesus points out to Pilate in his trial that Pilate couldn't even stand there in opposition to Jesus unless the Lord had granted him that authority in the first place. Okay, so all rulers are subject to King Jesus, even those that are opposing him. Pilate, of course, didn't know that he is under the rule and under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is seemingly operating independently, but Jesus makes it crystal clear that he is accountable to him. And the apostles did understand what was happening, to some degree at least, because they were familiar with this psalm. Uh, And you see that when Luke records the accounts of Jesus' trial uh, in Acts 4, you see he is able to make sense of what is happening at Jesus' trial because he is familiar with Psalm 2. And so he quotes it generously when he is giving his account in the book of Acts. So if you want to look with me in Acts 4, 24 through 31, I'll just give you a minute for those who want to turn there, Otherwise, I'll just read it out. In Acts 4, 24 through 31, it says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this is David speaking through the Holy Spirit. And now he quotes Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, note this, they're evil, but the story's going according to plan, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. These men are not operating autonomously. They're operating in accordance with the Lordship of God. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. All of us, regardless of status, again, have a desire, a sinful one, to centralize our own empires. And no class of person is exempt from this. The only difference between us is we have different levels of resources or power uh, to wage this war against God with. But all of us, apart from the grace of the Lord, are never content with our lot. We always want a little bit more, right? When will you be happy? Well, if I have just a little bit more. Just just one more dirt bike, just another $10,000, then I'll be happy. And of course, that never happens. We are never content with our lot. We always want more apart from the grace of Jesus. And so what do we do? We step on others to get ahead at work. Maybe we humiliate our, our spouse in public to make ourselves look better when all you're doing is making yourself look like a fool, right? And in the political realm, this means that kings will conquer foreign lands. They will get into complex... Uh, treaties that they intend to break later okay governments want to consolidate power into more and more centralized institutions or sometimes they will get rid of inconvenient people and Christ's claim is a direct threat when Jesus says he has all authority in heaven and on earth that is a direct threat and a direct declaration of war against man's autonomy what does autonomy mean Well, it's a conjunction of two words. You know the word auto, right? So an automobile is something that drives itself. Uh, Auto means self. So if something is automatic, it works by itself. And the word nomos means rule or or the law of something. So economics uh, literally means the rule of the environment around us. That's economics. Or astronomy would be the rule of the stars, the way things operate uh, in space. So autonomy just means self-rule. That means I'm in charge. I will call the shots, uh, right? We just came through uh, graduation time, and how many times do we hear this wretched speech that gets uh, continually preached over and over to the graduating class, I am the master of my own destiny, right? How many times have we heard that? What a wretched speech. You are not the master of your own destiny, okay? Uh, You can't do anything you set your mind to. Sorry to let you down, graduates. (laughs) I could practice 10,000 hours. I will never be good enough to play defense in the NHL, okay? I cannot do everything I set my mind to. You are not the master of your own destiny. Jesus Christ is, so bend the knee. This is what autonomy is, and kings do it, and paupers do it. We all think we are autonomous. We all want to raise our hands against God and take control of our own lives, and this is a foolish bargain. When this war gets out in the open we see what a threat the Word of God actually is to powers and rulers. A few years ago, I was reading a, a missions biography by a man named uh, Nick Ripkin, And he was talking uh, with missionaries in the former Soviet Union uh, under communism. And they recounted the tale of this one young lady who had smuggled Bibles into the Soviet Union. Okay, and this lady was about this big, probably weighed all of 120 pounds... Why does the entire force of the USSR need to come down on that woman, imprison her, and torture her? Why is a 120-pound woman a threat to this gigantic communist empire? Well, it's not her. She can't do anything. But she had the word of God. And that is a threat to those who want to be autonomous. That's where the power lies and that is why uh, communist countries, that's why statist uh, rule needs to squish out the word of God because it is a threat and they know under pressure that their gods that they're calling out to are impotent. The idols are always impotent. They don't answer. The word of God is true and God does answer and that is why Bibles can't be brought in here. That's why you torture a small woman who has no chance standing against the Soviet military. There is a war against the living God, and, again, because we know that these rival gods and those who worship them are impotent and can't do anything, this is why Christianity uh, is frequently focused for being threatened. That's why Islam gets a free pass, okay? Because Allah doesn't exist. There is no Allah. He's not a threat. The living God is a threat. That's why you are the problem, okay? That's why you, Christians, are the problem. The history of Christ's church involves many such tales of us being pushed aside, marginalized, made fun of, and sometimes it turns into outright opposition, outright persecution, as it uh, does today in China, or former times in the Soviet Union, or in biblical history, many empires uh, threaten God's people. So the Church of God has faced many chapters of strong opposition, and it is all for the same reason, because the Christian gospel of the Lordship of Jesus Christ is a direct threat to the autonomy of man. Okay, to to saying that the, the government is not the supreme being, the king is not the supreme ruler of the cosmos, and he doesn't like that news. Therefore, you go to jail. Therefore, you get made fun of. Therefore, you lose your charitable status. The message of Christ's kingdom, of a new creation that has made landfall on this earth, and of a different way of living, are all threatening to the ungodly. And so, like Christ, our job isn't to retaliate with force or violence, but to rest in the humble assurance that God's kingdom is slowly but surely expanding its dominion over this creation until he returns to make it perfect. So like Pilate and Herod and the Jews, those opposed to God may have their own interests in mind. They aren't really allies. They don't really like each other. They just have a common cause, which is to push Christianity aside. And it's a little bit like if you're uh, into World War II history, you'll know that uh, the former Soviet Union and the Nazis were allied for a while, not because they had common goals. They hated each other, and they knew as soon as this war was over, they're going back because they hated each other so much. There's going to be a war between them, Uh, and eventually Russia switched sides. Uh, They didn't, so they weren't allies, but they had a common enemy, okay, and that's like the enemies of Christ. Did Herod and Pilate have the same goals? No. Did Judas? No, he just wanted a bag full of money. So they're not friends, okay, And, and you'll see evil people, when they find each other, they're not actually friends, Give it time, they will always turn on each other, okay? And and evil rulers, evil empires will turn on each other. They hate each other. Uh, They know they're shady. Uh, They know when they conspire, they're making a bad deal. Uh, But they'll do it anyway because the target that's right in front of them, they agree, has to be gotten rid of, okay? And so uh, Herod and Pilate and these men, Judas, they're all acting together in one sense, and yet they all hate each other. They're all going to go back to war uh, against each other, just like the Soviet Union and Germany did. They break their word. Because they're liars, just like their father, the devil. And so, this conflict between rival authorities should not scare us. Okay, this is nothing new. We shouldn't be uh, worried about this. Don't stay up at night worrying about it. This is the history of how God always wins in the long run. Uh, in the Reformation, the Swiss reformer Theodore Beza uh, was on trial for his work in the Protestant Reformation, uh, and when confronted with the Duke of Guise, a Swiss. Uh, Swiss ruler, uh, he, he tells the duke this before his sentencing. So this is Beza to the duke of Guise. He says, sir, the church of God is to suffer blows, not to strike them. But at the same time, let it be your pleasure to remember that the church is an anvil which has worn out many a hammer. Okay, the church is an anvil which has worn out many a hammer. How many forces through the history of Christ's kingdom have come against the church and they're all dead? they're all in the ground. What's here? The Church of Christ, okay? We are part of an unshakable kingdom. Don't sweat it if you're living in rough times. Rough times are, uh, are always to be expected, okay? This is how Christ wins. He likes to tell interesting stories, which means there's often cliffhangers along the way. So if you find yourself in a cliffhanger setting, don't stay up at night. Trust that the Lord uh, has gotten victory through uh, insurmountable odds many, many a time. This is how he works, and so we know all men are obligated to bend their knee to God and to his son, whether they are janitors, electricians, stay-at-home moms, or rulers of nations. We are all accountable to live and work in a way that recognizes, obviously, the supremacy of God and of his Christ. And it's a fool errands to try to break free from God. Nobody is free from this responsibility. And so these opening verses are applicable to all of us, because all of us prefer autonomy to being under God's rule. But it's kings and rulers who are specified here, and this is significant. Why does David call out kings and rulers specifically? Well, they have the assembled power of thousands or even millions of people. They consolidate the power of many people, where most of us just have ourselves or maybe a family or a small band of friends. We don't have this obvious power that kings and rulers do. But when we try to slough out from the authority of God we try to puff up our chests and make ourselves as big as we can. And what's the biggest man can make himself? The biggest man can make himself is in the form of the state, okay? And this is why statism, uh, which is a, you know, kind of a worship of government or a worship of human authorities, uh, is frequently, is one of the most common rival systems to Christianity that ever exists, because man thinks he is strong when he works together, and, and we see that very much in our own day, when everything is about communal everything, right? We're, we're in this together. Uh, this is why you have to pay for somebody else's education. This is why uh, things work as they do, because we feel that if we consolidate it all in the power of the state, we can overcome everything, right? Uh, and so this is why every problem that has ever been found or created in your life, what's the solution always? More education, more government spending... <laughs> another program, another department. That's always the solution. Why? Because man, acting collectively, thinks he can throw off God. We think we have the the keys to every solution in us, and we do not. And so... We can see that this is most certainly the case in our own time, where the state runs everything from cradle to grave, from daycare, through government schools, healthcare, and then if we want one final act of autonomy, uh, freedom from God, then through assisted suicide at the end of our life, one last uh, raising of the fist against God and against his wisdom. So it does make sense that the psalmist does pick out rulers and kings as representatives for all humanity, because this is where all power is consolidated, is in these kings and rulers. And the bonds and cords that it references, that they're trying to burst away in verse 3, are the limitations that God has lovingly placed on us, and limits are good for us. They keep us operating according to design. And so it remains true that God's laws are loving and right. God's laws aren't meant to kill joy. God's laws are designed to maximize joy, to keep us grounded so we know where things fit, so we know how it ought to work. And the root of sin, really, if you boil it down, the root of sin is always that we think we know better than God. Every act of sin is you saying, I know better than God does. That's every sin you will ever commit. What's happening in your head, consciously or subconsciously, is saying, I know better than God does how to run my life. This was true for Satan. It was pride that cast him out of heaven. This was true for Adam and Eve, right? Did God really say, maybe we know better than God? This is why Adam fell. This is the same that happened to those building the Tower of Babel. Nothing will be too great for us if we can build this tower to heaven. We read about it in Nebuchadnezzar this morning in the the reading, right? Nebuchadnezzar sees this glorious uh, testament to his own glory, to his own power, and he is struck down to humble him. We saw this in Herod and Pilate. And so whether this is happening on an individual level or at a governmental level, this is, uh, it's, sin is our pride spilling out. We want to spill the banks of our own limits. We want to reach up to the heaven uh, and declare that we can be the master of our destiny. Why else would we live in such an absurd age as to think you could change your gender? That's absurd. That is one of the most ridiculous acts of throwing off the rule of God uh, that we could possibly have. I'm not happy with the way God made me. I will raise my fist in defiance and I will recreate myself. Okay? Uh, It's a lie. It's a lie. And it's the same thing that Herod and Pilate and Nebuchadnezzar are guilty of, saying, I will command my own destiny. In verses four through six, it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so, despite all the best efforts of people who are powerful and in privileged positions to put an end to God's mission, God is not threatened whatsoever. In fact, he laughs. And this is not the kind of laugh that one makes when a joke is told. This is a laugh of contempt, this is a laugh of anger. This is the laugh that you make when you see somebody attempting something foolish and you know it's a matter of time before it fails and they are embarrassed. It says that God's enemies are attempting a vain thing. Their plan is futile because they are going against the living God and this is a fool's errand. It says that God is holding them in derision and so that derision is a kind of open mocking about foolishness and so looking at it from the outside we know how these biblical stories turn out so so we look at it and well we say well How could it, you know, how could Herod be so silly as to try to kill all the baby boys as though he was going to snuff out Jesus, right? How could Pilate be so uh, foolish as to think that he could successfully weasel out of a tough situation? How could Judas be so foolish to think he could betray Jesus without any kind of repercussions? We see that because we know how the story goes. But now stop for a minute and make application to yourself. What do you do every time you sin? Say, I'll get away with it. I'll get away with it. I'll be the first one in history to get away with sin. I'll be the first one in history whose sin will not find me out. Why? Well, because it's me. See, you don't understand. It's me, right? Says 7 billion people, (laughs) right? It's me. I'm the difference. It is no different. Why would you think that your drinking problem isn't going to cause problems with others? Why would you think that cutting corners and doing a sloppy job at work is going to get you anywhere, okay? Why would you think your porn problem is going to stay under wraps? It won't happen. And and we might fool ourselves when we uh, get away with it for a period of time. But the Bible is sure, your sin will always find you out. We will not be the first ones in history to get away with our sin. God sees it all. And so if we see other people and we think, well, how could they be so foolish? Here is one rule of biblical interpretation that you can uh, hang your hat on. When you see people in Scripture acting foolishly, don't ask, how could they be so foolish? A better question is, in what ways am I foolish just like them? Right? We read over and over about Israel complaining in the desert. Oh, how could they be so dumb? What do you do? What do you do? Complain. Grumble. I'd like it a little bit better. I want better weather. I'd like my house to be more like the next guy's house. We're the same. We're no different. Okay? Um, and I learned this principle from R.C. Sproul, Jr., uh, who basically says, always see yourself as the bad guy in the story. So if you're reading about David and Goliath, you're not David, you're Goliath. Well, what if there's two bad guys in the story? You know, the, the prodigal father, and he's got the young son and the old son. Well, you're both of them. Okay? You're, you're guilty of both sins. We always want to see ourselves as the hero of the stories, but we're not. We're the heel of the story. And so we, uh, rather than looking at other people, we need to internalize this and see, how am I guilty just like this? Verse 5 talks about God terrifying the wicked in his fury. And what could be more terrifying than knowing you have spent everything? You have spent yourself, you've spent all your resources on waging a war, down to your last dollar, you've spent your last soldier, and then you look up and you see that you haven't even managed to dent your opponent's armor. And so it's no wonder that the Bible has so many accounts of powerful people like Nebuchadnezzar literally going mad and being reduced to acting like an animal for years on end before humbling themselves before the living God. So many of scripture's most interesting stories are those in which God actually turns people's evil in on themselves, right? What do Joseph's brothers do? Well, they want to get rid of the favored brother. They try to sell him. What's God doing? Getting Joseph into Egypt so he can save Israel, okay? It turns in on them. They intended evil. God intends good. What does Pharaoh want to do? Well, he wants to make sure that he humiliates Moses and Aaron with the hardness of his heart. What's God doing? crushing the most powerful man on the planet to show his power against the false gods of Egypt. Haman builds a gallows on which to hang Mordecai, thinking he's got the upper hand. What's God doing? Getting Mordecai to hang, or getting Haman to hang on his own gallows, okay? And we see this in our own time. We don't have prophets today. I'm not a prophet, so I'm not going to give an inerrant interpretation. But God still tells interesting stories. For instance, if you follow the news, isn't it glorious... That in June, Pride Month, the high religious feast to sexual perversion and sexual hatred against God, that that's the month that God strikes the, the, the idol of abortion on its face? Isn't that glorious? That's a story only God could tell. And it sounds a lot like, remember when the Philistines capture the ark and they bring it back and then overnight Dagon falls on his face, right? Their, their, their statue, their God is crushed. And so what do idolaters do? Rather than repent, well, let's put our God back up on his stand and let's kind of glue him back together. Uh, because we need to worship him again, right? And they don't see the irony that you have to put your God back on the shelf so you can worship him. This is idolatry. Uh, And so God is still telling interesting stories. Wicked men always attempt to snuff Christ out, not knowing uh, that this is going to turn on them, right? What what do those who put Jesus on the cross, what do they want to do? They want to close the gate between God and man. They want to stay in their autonomous little rat colony, But by doing that, by thinking they're closing that gate and killing the Lord of glory, what are they doing? They're destroying evil. They walked right into the trap. They took the bait because that's the gate at which heaven invades earth is through that event. They intended for evil. God intends it for good. And therefore, it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So God intends to set his king on Zion, verse 6, and that is exactly what he does. So whether it's David up front, getting to the throne, first through Saul trying to stop it, or whether it's years later, when the greater David, Jesus Christ, takes his throne through opposition, God's purposes can stand, and none can thwart them. Then verse 7 through 9, it says, "'I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, "'You are my son, today I have begotten you. "'Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, "'and the ends of the earth your possession. "'You shall break them with a rod of iron "'and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel.'" And this is the language that we see in 2 Samuel 7.14, where God is making his covenant with David, and where he sets him on the throne, but it's clear that this is also applied to Jesus himself. Verse 7 is cited in Romans one verse four, in Acts 13.33, and in Hebrews 1.5 and 5.5, 5, when talking about Christ being resurrected from the dead, and also about his ascension back into heaven. This is not saying, as some cults have suggest, that Jesus was an ordinary man and then God pours his divinity into him, uh, but rather that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, uh, and when God says, today I have begotten you, what God is doing is making an announcement that that his Son, his Christ, is about to do something significant and world-changing in human history. So Christ is coming back from the dead, destroying Satan's power over the earth, going back to His Father. And then taking his spot at the right hand of the father as the ruler of earth and heaven, just as the father decreed it. We know even earthly fathers, if you're a dad, one of the most rewarding things about being a dad is helping your children to succeed, right? And and when they need your help and and you're setting them up, you're teaching them, you're helping them take the next step, it's rewarding as a father to do that because that's the whole point of fatherhood is to set these little ones free, to, to send them on their own. And... If that is the case with us earthly fathers, how much more so is it the case with the heavenly father who overflows with joy when the son completes his work and receives all the nations as his inheritance? Jesus grew into full uh, manhood, to full obedience on earth, and the father is pleased to give him his inheritance now that he has earned it, now that he has won it. And so the handing over of the world from the Father to the Son, should bring tremendous joy and comfort to those of us who are Christians. And we live in a time where it's so common to take a pessimistic view of the future. And I think this is uh, largely the, the environment I've grown up in, is people have a pessimistic view about the future, and this includes Christians. They see things going downhill without much hope that the kingdom of God can advance. It's just getting worse and worse. We tend to think that when Christ returns. The world is going to be in utter chaos, with Satan ruling the earth and just a small band of Christians remaining. And this is a common assumption, like I say, even among Christians, because it's been popularized by a steady stream of books and movies that have popularized this view. But the imagery that we see in passages like this paints the exact opposite picture. It is not Satan, but Christ who is the ruler of earth today. Satan does not own the world, Christ owns the world today. The kingdom of God isn't just adding a straggler here or there, but the nations have been given over from the Father to the Son. And ever since Christ went to take his throne at the Father's right hand, history has been an ongoing mission to get the gospel to these nations so that they can come in and take fellowship in the kingdom. And the reason the world is still such a mixed bag today is because this mission is still ongoing. It's not complete yet and it's marked by setback and by advance. Often it advances three steps forward, two steps back, sometimes three steps back and two steps forward, but overall uh, God is accomplishing his purposes. But we still live in a world where we see sin and decay. Uh, As Alistair Begg has put it, there's still maybe moves left on the chessboard, but checkmate is there. If you play chess, you know once it's done, it's done. Yeah, we can play this out with three more moves if you want, okay? You can play the bottom of the ninth inning and let the winning team bat one more time, sure, go for it, but The outcome is settled. We know who the winner and who the loser is here. And so when we look at Jesus and his own temptation, Keith touched on this last week, about Satan offering Jesus the kingdoms of the world, what's happening there? Well, the problem with Satan's offer was that the kingdoms weren't really legitimately his to give. The earth was God's before Christ defeated the kingdom of darkness. And in one sense, Satan actually was behind many of the rulers and the empires on earth at that time. But in another sense, all of this is still under God's sovereign oversight. So think of it this way. Think of, uh, go back to colonial North America, and there's a British ship sailing from Great Britain to do trade with the North American colonies here, and a pirate ship overtakes one of these British fleet. Okay? And, and now the pirates have landed on this, on this ship, uh, and they're running the show. So, the British Navy catches up to this ship. It's run by pirates. Do the pirates have the right to negotiate with the British Army, the British Navy? Well, in one sense, they're running it, so kind of, yes. Do they have legitimate authority? No. No, they don't. Okay? But Satan's offer is like that. It's like a pirate offering a ship back to, uh, to the Navy, and Jesus wasn't about to cut shortcuts like that. He wasn't about to legitimize Satan's authority by taking it from him or cutting, the, uh, cutting pat- short his path of obedience. He needed to go through the obedience and then win it back. And if we use that shipping analogy uh, and apply it to the contest between God and Satan for the world, we could say that letting the pirates aboard the ship was actually a trap from the beginning. They were supposed to get there, so that the plan was eventually for the navy to catch up and to humiliate and to wrestle it back from uh, from their hands as an act of superior firepower. This was the plan from the beginning for Christ to win the nations back to the Lord. And so frequently we tend to think of God and Satan as approximate equals, kind of like the Yin and the Yang. But this is not at all the case. Satan is a created being. He is not all knowing. He is not all powerful. And he is not all present. He is limited to one place at one time. And he needs a, a band of demons to help him do his work, because he is so limited. So if we want to think of a, a, a more biblical picture, a, a, a closer analog or opposite side to Satan might be something like the archangel Michael. Okay? But God and Satan are not equals duking it out, arm wrestling for control of the universe. Satan is a lesser being. Okay? And so Luther says that even the devil is God's devil, and that is true. Christ had to fulfill his work here on earth for him to take his throne, much like his grandfather David had to get there the tough way. He had to wrestle bears and lions uh, and go through Saul on his way. It wasn't just easy. He didn't just sit down and take the throne, it was through much challenge. And so, since the resurrection of Christ, the battle for history is no longer a contest to see who is going to win, it's a cleanup operation. It's announcing to everyone that the war has, in fact, been won. Checkmate is settled. The outcome is determined, and now, if they kiss the sun, they can enjoy peace under the new regime. And those who continue to resist are on a lost cause. And this is why Jesus says in John 12, 31, that now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Or in another image, he has bound the strong man, and now he's plundering his stuff. He's taking his world back. And it's a little bit like in, uh, in World War II, Japan de- uh, defeated, or they... Admitted defeat in 1945, but as late as 1974, a man named Hiro Unada was still found as a Japanese soldier waging guerrilla attacks in the Philippines. No one told him the war was over. No one told him Japan lost. So he still thinks he can wage these guerrilla attacks. And that he, no, he didn't believe anybody when they told him the war's over, you can go home now. They actually had to fly out his commanding officer to formally discharge him. Then he believed it. Okay, that is what the journey of sin and autonomy is like the war's over. It's a lost cause. Yes, you can wage your little guerrilla missions, but they will not be successful. So knock it off. Kiss the sun. That's what unbelief is like in this world. We shouldn't be tempted to think of it as this overwhelming uh, thing that's going to take over, even in times like our own, which are legitimately dark. Rather, rebellion against God should be viewed as a lost cause holdout. The refusal to bend the knee to Jesus will not accomplish anything other than causing harm to the holdout. The unbelief, the ungodliness, and the war against God are all coming to an end. They are failed endeavors. The authority given to King Jesus means that those who persist in the old ways of sin are going to be broken with a rod of iron and broken into pieces like pottery, as the psalmist says. We know from scripture that every knee is going to bow, and it will either do so willingly in humble reverence and gratitude, or it is going to bend because Christ Jesus is going to crush it with the heavy blow of his rod and you will have no choice but to be on your knees. Hell is reserved for those lost cause holdouts who refuse to recognize and live in light of this new reality. But the fact remains that the world, in the regular sense of the world word, is going to be saved. Jesus has asked for the nations. The Father is pleased to give the nations to King Jesus. So when we say, Christ is Lord, think about it. What do we really mean? Lord of what? Or maybe another way to think of it is, of what is he not Lord. If all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, including all the nations of the earth as his possession, we should really mean it when we say Christ is Lord. He's not just Lord in some 19th spiritual dimension that never touches the real world. He's Lord of the real world, of time and of history, and of every little pin drop on Google Maps. Then lastly, in verse 10 to 12, it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And the word therefore indicates that everything that's about to follow is rooted in what we've already seen. And so because Lord Jesus is Lord of all right now, the rulers of the earth are warned to be wise. They're fooling themselves if they think that they won't stand before God one day just because they were rich and powerful on earth the ascension of Christ puts the world on notice and nobody will be able to hide behind an excuse and the office of king or ruler is a high calling and David isn't picking on them he was a ruler and Romans 13 which we've all heard plenty in the last several years uh, without adequate context calls kings and rulers God's ministers or diakonos this means that they have a noble calling under God and they bless the world when they take this calling seriously. And that's why in Canada, the minister of finance is literally a minister. We understood that when we made those titles. He is God's servant to manage the finances of God's country of Canada properly, according to God's law. That's why we call them ministers. Okay? They are not autonomous, but they must operate within God's limits and his instructions. And so while scripture does regard separation of church and state in terms of what each one is responsible for, we generally misunderstand this concept. Failing to see any separation between church and state has led to unfortunate things like the Crusades, or when I was a kid, you had these wackos, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, thinking that the world could be converted through political force, and of course that's not the way Jesus does it. But the over-separation taught to us today by the secularists and by many well-meaning Christians, but who have an escapist view of the world, uh, would seem to indicate that God has nothing to say to the state. He has nothing to say to kings and rulers. Uh, and so the church and the state are separate in one sense, in terms of what they're supposed to do, but there is no separation between state and God. Okay? There is no separation between state and God. The state is there to administer God's purposes, as per Romans 13. They are to obey King Jesus or face the peril that's coming. So the church should not be political in the sense that it shouldn't be partisan. But the Church is, in fact, the very best place to learn about human government, to learn about political theory. Campaign speeches and rallies and flags are out, but declaring that Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth are a must if we are going to preach the whole counsel of God, including Psalm 2. If we take the view that the workings of human government shouldn't be taught in the Church, what we are essentially declaring is that there are pockets of reality over which Jesus is not Lord. If Jesus can't talk about human government, we're saying Jesus doesn't really have all authority on heaven and on earth. So it is appropriate to teach Psalm 2. God has something to say to the king and to us. And again, the reason that kings and rulers are specified is because they're public figures who are easily recognizable. Uh, but we can all see ourselves in those story too. Pilate isn't the only coward who has ever existed. Judas isn't the only traitor who has ever existed, but we can say if the king of Babylon, if Nebuchadnezzar isn't immune to God, why would I think I am? I'm lesser than Nebuchadnezzar. If he can't get away with it, why would I? And then we end with verse 11. It says that we read about fear and trembling, and it may seem odd to think of that way for those of us who know God, uh, but the fear here isn't the fear of being disinherited, or the fear that God is still angry with those who are his children. not at all. It 's like Philippians 12 or 2:12 that tells us to work out our salvation with fear and reverence. it 's not scared of God, uh, it 's in awe of what He has done. That is the kind of fear that Christians have towards God. And then verse 12 shows that the coming of the Son means that the terms of peace have indeed been offered. He has offered peace to the nations through the gospel. He rules the nations and has been given everything on earth by his father. So our duty is to live in light of this kingship, and that is what it means to kiss the son. The commentator Matthew Henry is helpful here. He says, our duty to Christ is here expressed figuratively. Kiss the son, not with a betraying kiss, as Judas kissed him, but with a believing kiss, with a kiss of affection and sincere love. Kiss the son, enter into a covenant of friendship with him, and let him be very dear and precious to you. Love him above all, love him in sincerity, love him much, as she did to whom much was forgiven, and in thanks for it, kissed his feet. With the kiss of allegiance and loyalty, submit to his government, take his yoke upon you. And so the backdrop of the bad news helps us to see the gospel for what it truly is. The gospel is much more than an announcement of smile, Jesus loves you. It's a rescue mission of a fallen world, and of the son coming to reclaim what is rightfully his father's. It's a story of a long war waged by a rebellious creation against their creator and him still offering terms of peace. Rather than destroying this rebellious creation, God sends his son to win it back. And he gives it to his son as a, uh, as a bride, as an inheritance, as something that he has earned as a faithful son. And he offers us terms of peace under this new kingship of Christ. After all this, and all we have to do is kiss the son to yield to him, and we are part of this kingdom. We have peace with God. Okay, so we aren't just saved from unhappy consequences or from ourselves. Verse 12 says that the most imposing thing, the scariest thing, the most dangerous thing you are saved from is God himself. That's what you are saved from. You are saved from God by God for his glory. That is the most threatening piece of all. So what we see in Psalm 2 is consistent with the whole of redemptive history. It's not a story of decline that is so bad that we need to get taken out of the world. Redemptive history has setbacks. It works slowly, but it is always advancing and always expanding. It starts with one man and expands into a family, then tribes, then a nation, and now to all the nations of the earth. Just as Israel had to take the promised land in stages and often with great difficulty and setback. So now, too, Christ is expanding his kingdom across the entire earth. And there is still difficulty. There is still setback on this mission. But now, instead of being assured of one little sliver of land in the Middle East, we are assured of the entire world, the entire cosmos, belong to God, and Jesus has won it back. He has turned his enemies into his friends. And so what's your part in this? Perhaps your role in having this kingdom be manifested on earth is to discipling your children to be productive kingdom citizens. Perhaps it's teaching those around you the gospel of Jesus Christ, offering them the terms of peace that Jesus has offered. Maybe it's building up a business to the glory of God, so you can use your financial resources to God's glory. Perhaps God's calling you to a mission field, or maybe you're to stay home and support those who are going to the mission field, but we all have a role to play in this victorious kingdom. Now why don't we close in prayer? Father, thank you for your son. Thank you that you sent him to earth to conquer, to win it back, to be the obedient son that we could not be. Lord, and I pray that we would see ourselves in the grand sweep of the story, the drama that you are telling through all creation. We're all, from the poorest plowboy to the most powerful king, are commanded to kiss the son, to take the terms of peace or be perished, be struck with your rod of iron. Lord, I pray for each one here that they would know you in a saving way, that they would not wait for that rod to swing against them but that they would humbly, willingly, gently bow before you now and take the terms that you have offered. Lord, thank you for your Son. Thank you for his work on earth and in history. We give thanks all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the charge is this. The kingship of Christ works its way into everything. This is because all authority has been given to him both in heaven and on earth. Like the leaven in the loaf or the growing mustard plant, the story of Christ's kingdom is a story of expansion that advances until his return. Whatever you do, you now do as a citizen of his unshakable kingdom. You have kissed the sun and taken refuge in him. So now even your everyday work and mundane routines are part of the inner workings of this new kingdom. Our our work is God's way of loving us and giving us gifts through each other. As we live and work and have opportunity to share the gospel... We aren't just thinking of how to fill the time or how to get our souls out of here when we die. Rather, we are announcing how every part of God's creation is more and more being restored and perfected by the king he has put on his holy hill. Everything you do counts forever because you're doing it under the lordship of Christ. You are blessed because you have taken refuge in him. And now receive the benediction from Jude 24 and 25.